Welcome to another episode of Off the Menu. I'm your host, Vincent Franchini, here with an anachronistic Charles Coulomb. Anachronistic. Mm-hmm. Anachronistic, as in a relic. Yeah, antiquated. Obsolete. Yeah, from the past. No real place where he is. That's for sure. I see, I see. Well, uh, firstly, I would take that as an insult if... If, and only if, conditions back home were such that I would want to be a part of everything. You but don't want to be a part the, of these United States. Uh, not the way they are at the moment. I could do without uh, destroying statues. Wow. A fair weather friend, yeah. Fair weather friend. Uh, hey, look, as long as they've got dough, I'm there for them. You know, but then somebody loses his money. You got to move on, you know. No, seriously, I uh, I do come from a different time, a different place. I come from the United States that wasn't run by idiot idiotic people and didn't have mayors who responded by uh, to rioting, by uh, vowing to abolish the police. That's pretty stupid, and I uh, I honestly don't know what to make of it. I mean, intellectually, I do. I've seen it coming for quite a while, but now that it's here, it's pretty bad. I mean, these these people are, are, are so stupid. Uh, we were talking during the pre-show of the attack on the statue of Jimi Hendrix. Uh, you know, I, I, some people are too stupid to live, and I think a lot of our current rioters are are. They're, they're, they're just they're really, really stupid people who are owned by smart, evil people who really are stupid, too. It's just they're a lot more cunning. But at the end of the day, they're stupid because they're not going to. What do they think they're going to accomplish other than to become totally hated? Uh, now, there is a downside. And the downside is that history is accomplished by determined minorities. And the question is, I, I, it's hard to say because where these people are different is that they're eroding things like the police and the military, which are the foundations of anybody's power. You know, you can't control a modern regime without, control, without, without an effective police force and an effective military. You start annoying or, or breaking that, you don't have anything. We got zip. And I can tell you, if I were the Minneapolis Police Department, if I were the cops in Minneapolis, I'd just quit. You know, the, the, the city council voted 12 to 0 to abolish them. You know what? Let's start wait a year, kids. Let's do it now. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Oh, and now what are you going to do, little morons? Oh, it's so hard. I mean, even the mayor of Minneapolis came out against it. And Mayor Frey is not what you would call the brightest bulb in the uh, in the Christmas tree. But I think what happened, and he was talking about it before, but I think what happened with Mayor Frey is that he sat there for a little bit, scratched his head and said, wait a minute, if you don't have police department, if there is no popo, then you... 
you don't have anybody stop crime. So this Mayor Frey was able to pick up on. But for the city council of Minneapolis, it's still too too abstract a concept for them to wrap their little heads around. <laughs> and you, you would think pinheads wouldn't have such a hard time wrapping their heads around a concept. That's funny. I mean, we're just, you're trying to get across very elevated philosophical concepts to me on the pre-show. Just think of the, I mean, the juxtaposition between what we're talking about with the will and the intellect, and then this. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, you got to bear in mind that just because I'm aware that our culture has slipped doesn't mean I don't know how to function it for all that I'm anachronistic. I, uh, you know, the, the job of the popular writer is to be able to get his points across. And I think what you would have to say about St. Thomas or St. Augustine or anybody else like that today is that they would hardly qualify as popular writers. That's for sure. They might as well be writing in a, in a foreign language. Well, indeed, it's called intelligence, and it's not really, you know, something we're used to. But uh, just because one deals with that doesn't mean one mustn't or can't or shouldn't deal with the everyday uh, drivel, uh, lingo that we use now. And you have to be very forceful in your similes. I was asked by an individual at another school what I would do to uh, motivate the students to deal with the kinds of concepts we're talking about. And I said, well, now mind you, the school in question is, is a private school and the kids are very good, very, very Catholic and very much aware that things are screwing. But I said, the problem is that what you're teaching them is or trying to teach them is great. What you don't realize is a, how little they come to this place with and B, um, how subjective they are as moderns because we moderns are very, very subjective. Yeah. So what you have to do when you're trying to teach them something that's beyond their experience is show precisely how it relates to their experience. In other words, evils that they perceive stem from this and such and such. Right. And it's not just um, pie in the what it, um, abstraction. Abstraction. Yeah, in the sky. Yeah. It it has very real world right here and now effects. That's how you have to teach them, because if you just start with the concept and then go with the application afterwards, which is what the traditional way of teaching anything, you'll lose them. That's very true now that you say that. And I was thinking of, of sort of my interaction with non-Catholics in the workplace when I was working for, for other companies. And, um, you know, it's tough to talk philosophy with them. You really can't do it. And I think a lot of people discard these sorts of things because they see it as not relevant. And what you have to do is show the relevance. I mean, remember, the basic thing about philosophy, first and foremost, is the question why. Mm. Yeah. So when you're dealing with a modern person, uh, is it wrong for me to shoot you in the head? Well, yeah. Why? I was thinking that just the other day, too, uh, how you sort of unmasked idiocy with questions like that, particularly why. Yeah. 
Why? Yeah, yeah. I I remember because I I originally thought this when um you have stupid celebrities. Um, oh, like, now don't you be beaten up on my I, friends. I remember a long time ago, like Christina Aguilera, she was saying in terms of like <laughs> modesty that you need to push the envelope. We need to push the envelope. Why? Well, Why? yeah, and and then mean? I I have the question, well, what if we just rip your clothes off and stick you out into the center of the street? How about that? Uh, Would that be wrong? I mean, I don't get it. Why? Why do we need to push the envelope? Why is that so important? Where are we headed? Well, we know where we're Whoa. headed now. Yeah, we sure do. I mean, see, that's one of the interesting things too about this current situation that we're in. So, pulling myself together. Uh, so, yeah, the 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 end result of all this good stuff is that the uh, the current events have showed where we were going, and I'm I'm hoping. The, the genie can be put back into the bottle. Another question I'd ask is, so we're abolishing the, the uh, police force and we're coming up with, I don't know, I assume some other sort of force. Why well, is, that, why is that force forced. not going to be racist? Why are these well, people, they have the magic formula to not be racist? Oh, yeah. It'll be recruited exclusively from uh, street gangs. <laughs> no, I. You will see. You asked a. Uh, you asked uh, the obvious question, and in fact, uh, the the alternative they've come up with. It, I, I I love this stuff. I really do. I so stupid. Uh, the Minneapolis popo. Ah, here we go. Minneapolis pledges to dismantle its police department. Ah, Minnesota City Council. Where are we now? Uh, they want to replace it with a um, Department of Community Safety and Violence Prevention. What? Well, you asked, and it it uh, the suggested department would consist of peace officers and ensure public safety through a holistic, public-health-oriented approach. Whereas the police force wasn't that? No. The police force were, were violence-oriented. And, and what would happen if, let's say, a policeman saw a person doing something bad, he would attempt to stop him using violence. But a member of this new service will attempt to reason and, and appeal to his better nature. Hmm. Won't that be nice? Okay. And you know, the funny thing is that your chief of security, Tyrone, has said that he told his cousin Reginald, who is not by the way, in security or in, in police work. Reginald apparently is in a very different uh, uh, line of, of work. But uh, I overheard Tyrone telling him on the phone that uh, Minneapolis was the best place to run that kind of crap, in his words, after the new police force comes in. Now, I don't know what Tyrone meant about that. Mm -hmm. I, But I mean, 
I, I can tell you that Tyrone's opinion of the Minneapolis City Council is not extremely high for some reason. Rightfully so. Well, I think he's prejudiced against idiots. Definitely. He has a pretty low tolerance level. Yeah, he does for anything, but particularly for nonsense and idiocy. He, uh, no, I asked him what he, what he thought of the whole thing. And all he did was cock his pistol and say, let him come. I, 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 I was trying to try to figure out if there was some deep significance to that, you know, maybe a, a philosophical note he was trying to get across. But I got the distinct impression that he was being very literalistic, that on a, on a concrete level, he was um, expressing a desire to interact with uh, these people. Yeah, with his peacemaker. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> It's pretty strange. Then the uh, the only uh, the other news is that uh, I've noticed that uh, the secretarial pool are, if anything, getting even more anachronistic in their uh, in their clothing. It's amazing. I mean, I've always thought they were trying to revive 1964, but now it looks like they're going for 1958. I, I you know, for someone of my age, the, that difference is lost on me. I'm sure it is. But I, I suspect it's Sophie, the house mother, who's responsible for it because she's the only one who knows this stuff. But I mean, I uh, I went in there and instead of the uh, I didn't go in, but the, the the they brought the camera in before the show, and the uh, the formerly just above the knee skirts have dropped almost to uh, the calf, very fifty eight, and the hats have changed, you know. That's good. So again, uh, well, yeah, I mean. It's, it's beyond what I remember. You know, my memory only goes back to the early 60s. So you take this back in the late 50s, and it's like... It's alien it's, to it, you, huh? Well, not alien, but it's like watching a black and white television program. Okay. Well, you did that Ar for a long time. Uh, I did. I mean, it's like watching Armis Brooks or something like that. And I'm not, I'm not, I'm not upset. I'm just saying. The other thing, too, is that uh, some of our uh, listeners and uh, not necessarily patrons, have been making rather uh, unkind comments about the meditation garden. Yeah. And I, I really want to say that what I love most about the meditation garden is, I'm sorry, what we were talking about? You're going to do this again? Do what? Yeah, okay. Uh, <sighs> anyway, what I was trying to tell you is that what I love most about the meditation garden, all the else aside, is that it, what was I saying again? Oh my gosh, people are going to be complaining about this joke, Charles. All right, on to the memes of production. Fine, be that way, but only, only if we nationalize the memes of production. For the common good. Um, so... Big news today, Twitter is rolling out a very important new feature. I don't know if you heard about this. No, um, no. Babylon Bee's covering it. It says oh, Twitter very introduces good. new send mob feature. Yeah. <laughs> so for each, each post, you have this button here. It looks like a Molotov cocktail, if I'm not mistaken. It says send mob. Uh, this... Lucas Collins, for example, he writes, he does a tweet uh, saying people should not be treated differently because of their skin color. Well, 
that is a clear cut example where you want to hit the send mob button and just have everyone go after it. Absolutely. I think that's great. You know, it shows that Twitter is adjusting to the world that we live in the way we live now. I think that's beautiful. They're not being anachronistic in the slightest. No, no. That's how that's how we do things in democracy. You uh, I don't know if you said it during the pre-show or uh, just now in the full episode, but it's um, what is it? An active minority uh, yeah. is what changes history. It's what makes us right. History, history was made by active minorities. There we by go. By determined minorities. Determined. Yeah. Determined. So. Lynch mobs. <sighs> Gosh. All right. Um, so, uh, before we get to the questions, plug for the pre-show. Another hour-long pre-show. If you want to become a patron, you can sign up. For as low as five dollars a month now, we we filled up all the one dollar slots. There are you cannot get them. So all you Johnny come latelys, kind of missed the boat. I'm sorry about that. All you all you uh, early early birds get rewarded with a good deal, dollar a month. So, but them, wait a minute, them's the brand. You're saying only five dollars a month? Only five dollars a month. Only five dollars. Wow. Act now. This may be your last chance to give us five dollars. <laughs> no CODs. <laughs> Void where prohibited. You know, more and more people join, so you gotta sometimes limit these lower levels. This may be your last chance to give us five dollars, ladies and gentlemen. Operators are standing by. So once it <laughs> not an actor. Okay, we're having too much fun. Okay. I'm sorry. Yeah, I apologize. Uh, on to the questions. <laughs> okay. First question from Zane. Greetings. I wanted to say that I love the show. I have learned so much from you two and have shared your channel with several of my friends. I could use some advice on a topic that is extremely important to me. Okay. How, if possible, should I go about getting my grandparents to convert to Catholicism? They are both Lutheran and have a strong belief in God. They also show great interest in the church's teachings. We even visited the Basilica of the National Shrine of the Immaculate Conception last summer. Mm. The only problem is that they both had previous marriages. And my grandpa, who grew up Catholic, thinks that the church will never accept them. Though I think they both uh, could get annulments. What should I do? I'm 19 years old and a convert myself. All right. Well, firstly, thanks a lot for the question, and thanks a lot for your concern for your grandparents. I wish everybody felt the way you did. Uh, I would sit down and have a frank talk with your grandpa and point out to him that his first marriage may well not have been valid, and the same may well be true of his wife's. Um, that's something that has to be looked into. Um, and I mean, it, it, like, well, I mean, just to give you one example, if he was raised Catholic, uh, and his first marriage was outside the church, it wasn't valid. Just automatically. Automatically. If he married a woman, uh, a non-Catholic lady outside the church, that marriage is not valid in the eyes of the church. Now, 
Now, there are a lot of other reasons marriages are invalid, and there are more and more of them as people get sillier and sillier. But uh, the, as far as your grandmother goes, I mean, I don't know anything about her or her uh, first wedding, but it would be worth investigating, you know. So that's something you, you should emphasize to him and how much, how happy you would be able to go to communion with them and go to confession and so on. Uh, you know what a what a tremendous thing that would be, um, and at the end of the day, you also have to ask him what's more important: truth or convenience. But uh, everything you do, all everything you say, has to be done and has to be seen to be done out of love. Although I was I was chided by an individual recently for offering love as an answer, uh, I uh, no no it's all right I'm not bitter. Uh, nevertheless, it very often is, and uh, it certainly is in this case. Oh, stop! Would I tease you? He's referring to the pre-show, and it was on a serious matter, and he was what being silly. So that's what I'm going to say about that. Silly. All right, let me ask you then. If love is the answer, what was the question? What is God? All right. Mike Fight had a different answer. What did he say? What else can I get for five bucks? Oh. Tell what? you. It's what he said. All right. It's not my fault. Notice I'm always getting blamed. That's why I'm anachronistic. Because you're getting blamed? All the time for everything. Yeah. I, they're trying to charge me with defacing ten, uh, Jimi Hendrix's statue now. That is not true. So? <sighs> All right. What world do we live in again? I don't know, but I don't want to delve into the world of your mind, that's for sure. It's a far, All right, what else? Far scarier place than any reality I've been in thus far. You've where, not been to the 15th floor. <laughs> where John Wayne is fighting Cthulhu and um, what is it? Hans von Balthasar and another <laughs> Carl whatever or Colorado. yeah when they were fighting the Battle of Los Angeles yeah and singing what is it praise the Lord and pass the ammunition yeah. <laughs> and Winston Churchill in the in the woman's bathroom <laughs> that was very scary transgender that's very scary. <laughs> Bobby, who's who's the fat lady with the cigar? Okay. I have never promised anything but blood, tears, toil, and sweat. Okay. I'm gonna maintain. Yes, you you must do. You must maintain. 
like uh, Riff Raff in, uh, Rocky, in Rocky Horror Picture Show. <sighs> All right. Next question from Covington. All right. Could, could Charles go over the history of the lost children of Francoism? If he could, then please do so. Oh, see, I... He caught he on. He caught you. He caught you. Wow, well done, Covington. Yeah. He can, well, he knows what would happen. It's, oh, sure. Good job. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I could talk about it. Absolutely. Next question, please. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Covington. Well, since you nailed me to the floor on this, I'll tell you. Basically, during the course of the uh, Spanish Civil War, when the communists attempted to take over Spain and were... Uh, subjected to a sort of preemptive strike by Francisco Franco, over 200,000 kids, supposedly, were uh, taken from various imprisoned and executed communists and given to various other people in orphanages and so on. Well, this is shown as another sign of Franco's evil. Yeah, a couple of problems with the reading of that. Firstly, as we know, in communist takeovers, such children, that is to say the children of political opponents, were generally just killed. Generally just slaughtered them. That's the way it was in the Russian Revolution. That's the way it was in the Russian Civil War. That, 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 that was the way it was done. And, of course, a lot of children of nationalists were murdered that way. But instead of murdering these children, Franco took them away and gave them to the good homes at least as good a home as you can find uh, under the circumstances. The uh, truth of the matter is that every society that thinks that bad parents have children usually withdraw the children from them. Uh, that's why we have county protective services in L.A. County, isn't it? And they think nothing about snatching children away from their parents if the parents are bad. Now, sometimes it's for an objective reality. The parents are drunks or drug addicts, things like that. Other times, and I know this from experience, it can be for, shall we say, ideological reasons. So, uh, what, the, uh, what they like to uh, present as another example of Franco's evil, to me, A, was an act of mercy, when you're fighting a life-and-death civil war with people who really want to destroy you, uh, taking care of their children and not slaughtering them outright is actually a very good thing, well, I think. Playing devil's advocate, how, how definitive was the proof of, I mean... That's pretty definitive. I mean, when, when uh, people have gone to jail for taking up arms against you, you know that they're in jail for taking up arms against you. Uh, when another example, of course, is children whose parents were killed fighting Franco. In other words, the parents were already dead. Uh, what do you do with them? Well, as I say, the Russian communists would have just killed them and then saved themselves the problem. I don't know what the Chinese communists would have done, but it wouldn't have been fun. Uh, but instead, they were adopted and given, uh, given homes and education and all the rest of it. Uh, and I'm sorry, that to me, especially given the hatred that flowed in and through that civil war, uh, it seems like quite, the de quite a decent and uh, merciful thing to do. Very different from what the loyalists would have done had they won. All right. 
Next question is from Ian. How does the current woke iconoclasm compare to the actions of the Republicans in Spain? How did it start there? Boy, people are really fixated on Spain tonight. All right, fine. I don't care. Uh, basically, it began the same way. It actually began the Civil War. As early as 1931, there began to be attacks on convents, lootings, and things like that. But it just got more and more and more and more and more. And then it, it went to the grotesque, you know, uh, yanking mummified nuns out of their coffins and uh, raping them. Uh, I mean, just horrible stuff, really disgusting. But the same thing happened in the French Revolution. Mobs get weird. You know, they just get weird. I hope it won't go to quite that extreme with us. Um, and of course, you know, the, the, the raping of living nuns as well, uh, murders of priests and religious, it was pretty awful. It was pretty awful. Okay. Well, what was all that over? That was the as civil a, war? The Spanish civil war. The, you know, where Franco, uh, took the children away from their parents. All right, next question is from uh, Ian as well. Mm -hmm. As it looks more and more likely that authorities protect churches or statues of saints or other, or other holy figures, it may fall to uh, parishioners. Uh, I can't help thinking some bishops or priests may try to forbid protecting these monuments out of a desire to avoid violence or to win over the mob. If this happens, is this an order that Catholics must follow? Or is this a well-formed conscience situation? I think it's definitely a well-formed conscience situation. Um, a lot will depend on what the bishop was like before. I mean, if he was hiding during the COVID, then he just needs to continue hiding. Um, so much of news is oh, this is bad, that's bad, you know, it's certain, um, you know, it's th things that trigger your anger or fear. No. Uh, but one bit of good news that wasn't reported as much was one of the Franco statues, the one in Ventura, actually got defended and protected by the laity. Uh, Father Sarah, not Franco. Oh, excuse Did I? what did I say? It's the one of the Franco statues. Oh, yeah. Well, uh, it's true. Franco statues have been attacked all over the United States. No, uh, pardon me. Uh, Father uh, uh, St. Sarah, Sarah. Yeah. Um, got defended. And so the laity did their job, and, and I'm very proud of them. Me too. Um, they, they did their job, and the clergy did not interfere with their doing their job. Yeah. So, uh, you know, we always want to complain about everything, but th there are... I, th I think it's important to cling to acts of heroism like that. Well, and there have been quite a number. I expect there'll be more and more. Uh, therein lies the danger, in a sense, because uh, the border between necessary defense and vigilantism is very thin. Mm. And it's not always visible. Um. I mean, you know, if, if, if you have a crowd attacking a statue and they start to get extremely violent, what do you do? You pull a gun. Well, 
um, depending on the neighborhood you're in, depending on where you're at, um, you might end up with a lot of these morons shot dead. You jump from nothing to a gun like that? What about a bat? Oh, that too, in between, sure. But the point I'm making is that the more longer this goes on, the more radicalized the non-moronic population will become. Right. And that's why it really needs to stop. <laughs> you know, it really does need to stop. Uh, it's it's getting so crazy. You know, in, in uh, Houston, Texas, the uh, Realty Association has decided to do away with the phrase master bedroom. Yeah. Now, what do you say? You know, would I ever buy a, uh, a house from somebody who's stupid like that? No, I wouldn't. If I lived in Houston, I'd say, where's the master bedroom, dimwit? Something of that nature. But this, there's going to be more and more of this stuff, and the faults will continue to grow. But the violent stuff has to end. It really has to end. Uh, if the longer it takes, the nastier the outcome. However, having said that, being all smiles as I am, one of the reasons I'm anachronistic, <laughs> just like that, uh, I'm, I'm, uh, I am very happy that the uh, Trumpster has taken the monuments under federal protection. And I'm very glad that the FBI is moving on these kinds of things. But they need to, to they, they have to be seen to be effective. That means people are going to have to go to jail for it. That's very, very important. Uh, otherwise, it won't stop. And the other thing, too, is that just like the Trumpster's election reinforced the faith of a lot of his supporters in the system, a faith which had been severely tested under the Obama regime. So, too, if the FBI actually succeed in stemming this, it will reinforce their, their faith in the uh, machinery of government. Trump is going to win so hard. Yeah, I really I think mean, he's, he's going, going to. to win before all of these shenanigans. But with these shenanigans, he he's going to beat um, Biden harder than Reagan beat Mondale. Probably. I, I mean, it, it's going to be a slaughter. And, what, and what, I, what I love, what I love about this is that right now the polls are saying he's 10 points behind Biden. They want round two of embarrassment. Like, well, yeah, the you know, 2016 no one... all over again. <laughs> you know, they, they, and the thing is, too, it won't just be uh, the president this time. I suspect they'll get, they'll regain control of the House. Yeah. Uh, and I, I would not be surprised if they get a hold of a lot of the state houses. I mean, the governor of North Carolina, who's just, just been a boob, uh, he comes up for election in November. This leads me to a question, um, a natural question, um, in terms of political expedience. Mm. Because we've quite clearly seen everybody drifting left more and more. 
does the recent happenings cause everyone, at least in the short term, perhaps, move a little bit to the right? I would Including suppose the, so. Um, and I'm, I'm speaking specifically of the Democratic Party. I, I, I think so. I mean, I think there'll be a lot of people who have been horrified by what has crawled out from under the rocks. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you know, if nothing else, if you've got a shop in downtown L.A. that was looted, uh, you're not going to vote Democratic. Mm. I mean, it, it's just not happening. Um, you know, years ago when I was writing in a uh, column for Creole Magazine, I spoke about the L.A. riots in 92, it was that year. I asked the question, I've, I've posed it several times, I'll pose it again. How oppressed do I have to be before you think it's okay for me to loot your store or burn your house? And the answer is never. You will never believe. I, I could be shot dead in the head. You will never believe that your house being burned or your home or your uh, store being looted is justified by my being oppressed. I don't care how badly oppressed I am. You never will. Okay, let's get a little bit more concrete and specific. Do you feel that the language is going to change for, uh, in, in terms of uh, what politicians are saying, that they're going to be less sympathetic, perhaps like Newsom, talk about more things about law and order? Only if they want to get elected. And, and I'm quite serious because you got to bear in mind, a lot of these people are, in a certain sense, insane. They're more in love with their ideology than they are with reality. Mm. Uh, I mean, it's the kind of insanity that cost the Nazis the war on the Eastern Front. Because they were more interested in imposing their racial doctrines than in defeating the Soviet Union. Right. And so they lost, you see. They could have won. I mean... They, they, it was theirs to win, theirs to lose, basically, and they lost it good. Defeat snatched from the jaws of victory. And that's what comes when your leadership are more in love with the stupid visions of their own little pointed heads than they are with external reality. Even, and mind you, I don't even mean to say that they're necessarily good people. They're not even practical people. I mean, you could have a man who's an utter crook running a city, but he knows that if he wants to stay reelected, the uh, the streets have to be clean and safe. You know, the police have to be reasonably honest, even if he isn't himself. Uh, the the street lamps have to work. You, you know what I'm saying? Yes. He realizes that if he wants to keep employed, there are certain basic things that have to be fulfilled. Now, if he instead has an ideology that tells him, well, I'm into organics, and really, if trash weren't picked up, we'd have compost heaps in front of every home. Well, <laughs> he could do that, but he wouldn't get reelected. He could say, you know, we really want to save energy, so we won't turn on the street lamps at night. He could do that. He could say, we don't want anyone to be hurt, so the police will not go out on, on calls for violent crimes. He could do all that. 
and he would lose the next election because he'd be more into his ideology than even his own political survival. So to answer your question, it all depends on how nuts each of the individuals is. If they're, if they're properly insane in, in this sense, in a political sense, then no, they're not going to dial it back. They'll, they'll make it more so. You know, none of this would have been ha- none of this would have happened if only we'd been egalitarian. Well, I guess playing devil's advocate, I mean, we've are you um, perhaps overconfident in voters because we've elected insane people into office, to be honest. Well, that's true, but I'm also aware of uh, how low the voting turnouts are. Okay. And their their voting turn voter turnouts are low because people don't see a point to it. I suspect in November they will see a point to it. Well said. Okay. Uh, next couple questions are from Joshua. Okay. Uh, Dear Charles, my question is about the first Saturday devotion request, which Mary requests reparation toward her immaculate heart. My, this confuses me, as it seems to be the opposite of the request made at the original apparition, where Mary asks us to do penance for the five sins with the acts directed toward God, not the Blessed Mother. But in later requests, she has it be directed towards her. So my question is, how is this possible? How is it not a grave sin since it's my understanding that acts of reparation can only be directed at God and not his saints? I understand reparation as dealing with the debt of temporal punishments, uh, i.e. same as penance. Uh, Well, I'm afraid your understanding is incorrect because reparation really can be done toward anyone. If I've stolen your wallet, uh, and then I return it to you and give you 20 bucks on top of what was there. That's reparation. Uh, you'll be amused to know that back in the days when we still had the devil's advocate in the causes of saints, when a saint was canonized, uh, the devil's advocate of that cause would spend time making reparation in front of the altar of the new saint. Oh, in, so he was asking that saint for reparation. Yeah. Not God. Exactly. Well, in a sense, I suppose you would say whenever you ask one of God's saints. Sure. But, uh, but yeah, he was being very specific. Because remember, the devil's advocate's job was to try to prove that this person was not a saint. And so they would write all sorts of critical things about them and so forth. Well, then it's proved, uh, no, the person was a saint. And you have besmirched the reputation of a saint. What do you do? You make reparation at the altar of the new saint. That's what you do. Or what you did when they had them. So similarly, making reparation for uh, uh, various various uh, things against the Virgin Mary uh, is the same thing. Hmm. Now, also you should bear in mind that uh, penance and reparation are not the same thing. All penance is a kind of reparation, but not all reparation is, a, is penance. 
Let, let's because yeah, this kind of answers uh, his second question. How does reparation ah. differ from penance? Ah, I tried looking question. up the definitions, but there are many different ones for each, and sometimes they are contradicting each other. For example, penance is described as a punishment, a mortification, a conversion of heart, reparation for sin, an act of contrition. I don't see how all these can be correct at the same time. Well, it's because they refer to different aspects of the same act. Hmm. You see, it's kind of like when you're baptized. Well, you receive sanctifying grace. You receive infused knowledge. You receive an indelible mark on the soul. You are inserted into the mystical body of Christ. You uh, have all original and all actual sins obliterated. Well, these are different aspects, but they're not contradictions. You know, it's not, so you wouldn't say, well, how can you say baptism brings infused knowledge when it obliterates all sin on the soul? Well, those are not contradictory. I see. All right. Uh, next question is from Zane. How come Irish nationalism and republicanism came to be left-wing movements? Seems odd given the close relationship between Irish nationalism and Catholicism, especially during the Troubles. What, what's the, very, what's, what are the Troubles? Well, the Troubles, well, there were two sets, really. In the 20s, first the, the fighting between the, uh, uh, the Irish rebels and the British. And then in 1922, when the treaty was signed, there began a two-year civil war between those who signed the treaty and those who opposed it. And then uh, in the 60s in Northern Ireland, you had a renewed set of troubles between the, uh, the uh, IRA, the Orangemen, and the British. So, um, well, it's a very, very good question. And I'll, I'll expand the, the conversation a little bit by pointing out further that all Celtic nationalism, uh, even Breton and France, but Cornish, Welsh, Scots, and the Welsh and Scots nationalist parties, as with the roots of Irish nationalism, were very traditionalist. Uh, and in fact, were bound up with the neo-Jacobite movement of the late 19th, early 20th centuries. It's interesting that some of the early leaders in Welsh and Scots nationalism, like Saunders Lewis and uh, uh, Rory Erskine Omar, were converts to Catholicism, they were very devout, and also very uh, monarchist. And yet, the Scottish National Party and the Plaid Cymru, like the uh, Sinn Féin and the IRA today, were left-wing parties, are left-wing parties. Marxists? And the answer is that the transition came about in the, to a degree in the 50s, but particularly in the 60s. Uh, around the time of Vatican II, uh, they, they became Marxist to a great degree and have remained ever since. Um, unfortunately, they're, they're very adept at using the symbols of Irish or Scots or Welsh tradition, which given their beliefs really is wrong. 
you know, if, if, if your desire, for instance, is to have a socialist Republic of Scotland, you shouldn't be waving the white rose again around and yapping about Bonnie Prince Charlie. You know, no, you don't, you, you, you shouldn't be given that right. Um, and the same is certainly true in Ireland. Uh, and it's, it's very, very, uh, it, it's so grotesque that Sinn Féin, uh, the political wing of the IRA, in Northern Ireland have welcomed the attempts of the British Parliament to impose abortion on Northern Ireland. Hmm. And these are the nationalists. You know, with nationalists like that, what you need is slavery. Whoa. Whoa, let's... Let's dial it down a notch, Charles. No, I don't think so. I'm not going to dial it down. These are the same scumbags whose long-term frog-boiling of the Irish population uh, brought only 33% voting against abortion in the Republic and the same number voting against gay marriage. I'm not going to dial it down. Not a bit. Not a bit. So be it. I won't dial it down on the French Canadians either. The scumbags that brought us the Revolution Tranquille have condemned us to death. I'm not going to dial it down. They're scum. It's a pity they're not alive to be smacked around. All right. I mean that in a nice way. Okay. Next question is from Andrew. This may be okay. a very basic question, but how does one offer up joys and sufferings? Is there any, or is there a difference when offering something up to God as compared to offering something up for a particular intention, such as for the souls in purgatory? Are there prayers to say when offering up a joy or suffering? Great question. And very basic. So the next question. Oh, all right. I'll, I'll ask this though. Well, no, because this question was, this may be a basic question. Oh, 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 oh I see. Yeah, so, so, I I, uh, mean, I could get away with just saying, yes, it is a basic question. It's That's, not a basic question. I think this is a very important and actually a little bit complex question, one that I've partially had myself. You um, think basic questions aren't important? Well, of course okay, it's important. I, I misspoke then. A, a little bit more complex and a little... Um, not necessarily um, axiomatic. All right. I'll go with that. Okay. Well, basically, um, there are certain particular prayers you could say. The morning offering, of course. You know, you offer all your joys and so forth. You know it. Well, I've been promoting it because that's the literally the most important prayer of the day. Because it turns your whole day into a prayer. Quite literally. So, so say it. I have it here, and I, this is what I recommend you do. I've memorized it, but I have it. I have it taped to the bottom of my monitor, so because every day I, when I wake up and I go to my computer, there it is as a reminder. Oh Jesus, through the immaculate heart of Mary, I offer you my prayers, works, joys, and sufferings of this day for all the intentions of your sacred heart, in union with the holy sacrifice of the Mass throughout the world, in reparation for my sins, for intentions of all my relatives and friends, and in particular for intentions of the Holy Father. Um, yeah. Now that's pretty all inclusive. Uh, and it, but you can also offer things on the spur of the moment. Like you get a, you get a cut in your finger and it hurts. But see, I offer this up. What, 
well, see, that's a suffering. See, and now that I have unlocked that for me mentally on how to approach that in terms of suffering, because you say, I offer, you know, it's, I offer, I unite the suffering to your cross. I accept the cross. I abandon myself to God's holy will. Um, and so that's sort of a holy thought that you're not resistant to what's being done, you know, because what's being done is God's holy will. So it's very important that you accept it. But it's a little trickier when it comes to offering up joy. I don't know how to yeah. work that out uh, yet. Could you explain well, that? Well, I, I can. Uh, it's actually the same way. When you suddenly feel yourself just really, let's say you're walking along, all right? You're, you're going for a walk. And the weather is particularly good. And the wind hits you like a caress. And the lighting is beautiful. And the the perhaps the buildings that you're walking among or the trees are both are really, really lovely. You just get an overwhelming feeling of happiness. You know you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, I get this on walks when I see the birds and, and I see houses. Exactly. That's precisely what I'm saying. Uh, that's a good moment to stop and say, I offer up this joy to you. Okay. I was, uh, I, I, that's interesting because I, so then it's like a Thanksgiving uh, yeah. that you give. But it's, that's but what it's I do a, is I, you thank God for moments. And it's also, it's a Thanksgiving and also an offering of the thing itself. The same, uh, by the same way you would offer your pains. And yes, it's it's it is gratitude certainly, but also it's how do I put it? Just as somehow your sufferings have a point in the economy of grace, so too do your joys. Uh, your your pains can bring relief to someone. Very very likely, so can your joy. Now, who that person is and how he applies it, who knows? I don't. But it, uh, you know, it may be that a little bit of the joy you feel at a given moment comes to someone else uh, halfway across the globe who, for whatever reason, is terribly depressed. And poof, he doesn't feel so bad. All because you were so happy and offered up the bit of joy you had just then. But this is all speculation. But that's like not counterbalanced, though. That's like, I'm happy, therefore, that earns merit for this other person to be happy? Could be. I don't know. Oh, you don't know? You're just spitballing? Yeah. What good is, is that theology degree that you're trying to get? It's just, it means that I've got a degree in theology and I can wrestle with difficult concepts that other people look at and say, what does it mean? But you're supposed to get a, a higher degree of certainty or... Wait until the next three years are over, then we'll find out. <sighs> College has taken its sweet time. No, oh, well, it's okay by me. Um, it's also actually another uh, sort of tangent from this. Uh, a priest once gave me spiritual advice I didn't qu quite understand, um, which was to offer up the Eucharist. And I, yeah. I, I didn't know what that meant for me to do or think. As soon as you receive... Uh, when you go back to your place and you, you know, you're making Thanksgiving and so on, uh, 
literally I offer up my Eucharist, I offer up my communion for, and then have your intentions and toss out those intentions, whatever they are. I see. The, uh, your brother and I used to joke about stealing people's intentions. What? Yeah, you know, you're, you're in line, right? And then you see that, that horrible old Mrs. McGillicuddy. I know. I'll offer her communion for my friend Vinny. That's right. And Mrs. McGillicuddy's, I don't know what it is. None of my communion intentions ever come to pass. That's bath. horrible. <laughs> <laughs> wow. The intention thief. <laughs> wow. kind of like that <laughs> yeah oh, well you see it was your your brother who came up with it with me so it appeals to the frankini sense of the cruel well it appeals to our sense of the common good you see yeah that's it that's it yeah i like that all right i gotta remember that that's uh and of course you after a while you see really annoyed and disappointed people at that church <laughs> oh and there's mr sullivan I guess I'll offer his intention for. <laughs> wow! And then the pre the priest keeps getting keeps getting bombarded by his parishioners, wanting to know why none of their communion intentions getting ever ever come to pass, and he doesn't know. He doesn't know he's got an intention thief in his flock. <laughs> Meanwhile, everyone's like, oh. Look at that, Bob Johnson. Everything's going his way. Everything's just fine. It's amazing. I don't know what how he does it. And Bob's... Hmm. Wow. You know, he's a daily communicant. He's very pious. <laughs> wow. That boy going to milk every last intention out. Sometimes he goes to Mass three times on Sunday. <laughs> Wow, that okay. This is a revelation on the show. <laughs> All right, um, on to the <laughs> on to the book, shall we? Ah, uh, yeah. So, are we done with questions? We are done with the questions. Well, actually, we're not. I mean, technically, we're done with the questions, but we've got the book, which stems from a question, if you will. So, Utopia okay. Nowhere by Solange Hertz. Um. Now here. Yeah, Utopia Nowhere, now here. That's right. Um, and Utopia Nowhere, that uh, she's titled that because, uh, what is it? Is it Greek? Uh, Utopos Greek. means uh, n what? Um, nowhere? Nowhere. I think, yeah, because it can't be found anywhere. Um, so, this is actually uh, my favorite of Solange Hertz's books. Uh, at least in terms of quasi-political ones. A uh, lot of wonderful chapters. Uh, if you're not familiar with Solange Hertz, uh, she, uh, they're sort of um, derived from articles she's wrote on um, different topics, and she sort of gets a collection of, of uh, articles on similar topics. And this one uh, has to do with um, revolution. Because, see, revolution always seeks to create a utopia. Yes, indeed. Except it brings hell on earth, as she points out, that the 
the people who are in a conspiracy, an unknowing conspiracy with the devil, they always are trying to make a utopia on Earth. They're more concerned about that than um, than God's true um, utopia, God's paradise. And so there's a wonderful chapter on uh, Louis the the Sixteenth, proto martyr. Um, the political dimension of the sacred heart, very important. Yep. Um, all these sorts of things. I need to read this. Saint Joan confronts Utopia. Oh, there's another one. Um, really, I need to read. This is one of those books that is worth rereading, and I need to actually reread this because uh, there's a lot of important things in it. Um, let's see here. Oh, let's read the summary. Love her summaries because I take it from her writings and they're always just so sharp. History is the record of an apocalyptic struggle, says Solange Hertz, between those two primordial kingdoms, that of God and that of the devil. St. Augustine saw these irreconcilable factions as the city of God and city of man. Both are world governments in the largest possible sense, and they are locked in mortal combat till the end of time. For nothing less than the souls of men. I love this historical perspective. I've mentioned this on the show before, but this is how Solon Church sees history. Um, when separation of church and state was established as a political principle in modern times, the two cities began parting uh, company visibly before the eyes of all, but only to square off properly and get at each other better. Like any couple whom God has joined together, Church and state can never be divorced. Ooh, this is from the Gospel of Charles right here. Well, maybe you yeah. got that from Solon Church. I don't know who said this first, but um, uh, great minds think alike. Great minds think alike. See, you don't. I don't know anyone else that really espouses these things. Uh, so here we go. Um, no matter how many fictitious decrees are handed down by the court of domestic relations, <laughs> they are still married. And that precisely is what causes all the trouble. Uh, so, oh man, gosh, that that's just that's so you right there too. I mean, you can see the influence Solange Hertz has had on you. I think. Um, well, you know, I knew her. Yeah, of course. And uh, you know, we came up with a song for her. Okay, Charles, go ahead. So long, it's been good to know you. So long, it's been good to know you. I actually sang that to her. I'm sure she appreciated it highly. She laughed hysterically. So, uh, we have a wonderful question from a patron who has named okay. himself Knight's Tumblr. Ah. All right. He says, Dear Charles, I recently fell victim to a clever marketing ploy and purchased the book Utopia Nowhere by Solange Hertz, now huh. available at Tumblr House for thirteen ninety five plus shipping and handling. You know, if he'd bought two of them, he uh, he would it would have been over twenty five dollars. That's right, and I actually looked up his order, and he bought like three books. So this is kind of. Uh, don't worry so about got... shipping and handling, ladies and gentlemen, because all orders over $25 at TumblrHouse.com get free shipping and handling. So he got free shipping and handling. That's right. But uh, 
no CODs, void were prohibited. Operators are standing by. <laughs> Limited time offer, act now. Not an actor. I'm not an actor. No. Uh, <laughs> okay, so he goes on to say, However, it turned out for the best because this book is full of priceless information that was well worth the money and the embarrassment I suffered from impulse buying. Uh -huh. Particularly in her essay, The Political Dimensions of the Sacred Heart Devotion, she puts forth uh, several ideas that piqued my curiosity, and I'm hoping you can offer some illumination on two points. First, she suggests that the current deplorable state of the Jesuits is a consequence of their failure to publicize the public aspect of the Sacred Heart devotion in the 18th century. I have read about the infiltration of modernism into the ranks of the Jesuits and Malachi Martin's account of their downfall in the 20th century, but Solange Hertz seems to get a much deeper cause. Uh, get at a much deeper cause. Do you think there is truth to her claim about the Jesuits? Does the spread of modernism have something to do with neglect of the Sacred Heart? This is interesting. Well, it is interesting. I mean, obviously, I can't give you a definitive answer, but I would say it was definitely part of it. Uh, you remember that the Jesuits used to preside over a great deal of Catholic devotion in Toto. They were amongst the forefront in pushing the Sacred Heart. The Marian congregations, were, they were the sponsors of, you know, in the, the Marian devotional mm -hmm. societies. Uh, but all of that kind of fell by the wayside. Um, and it's, it's, I mean, look, failure to promote the Sacred Heart has always led to trouble. Yeah. It, it, it just does. Uh, I, I can't pretend to know why that is, but I can say, for instance, that any order that's been dedicated to the Sacred Heart, or the Precious Blood for that matter, and doesn't promote those devotions, loses members and dries up. Um, there was, there was a, um, uh, order of nuns called the Association of Helpers of the poor souls in purgatory. Well, it sounds pretty straightforward, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. Well, they now call themselves just the Association of Helpers. Mm. So, why are they taking up space? And uh, now that's, you might say, both a natural and a supernatural issue. Um, there are others. Uh, one of the things you have to remember about the Jesuits is that the man who, more than any other single person, was responsible for turning them into what they are now. I'm not prescinding from their former problems that Solange talks about. It was Father uh, Pedro uh, Arupe, who uh, was the general of the order in the 1960s. Now, he was kind of uh, damaged goods. He was a witness of the atom bomb in Japan in 1945. Yeah. And it, it really messed him up good. Uh, I think, you know, one thing you'll often find with people who go through things like that is that their devotional life suffers tremendously. And they begin to think that devotions are very unimportant compared to getting things done in the here and now. Hmm. 
Um, why it seems do Jesuits obviously they've fallen the farthest, but why do they get placed with special responsibility in this matter, perhaps compared to Benedictines, Franciscans, Carmelites, well, all these things? Because because the Jesuits, thanks to their founder and thanks to the way they were started and the way they were put together. They were simply the most effective order in the church. Mm. They were, in their days of glory, they were great. And they were very effective missionaries. They uh, were not simply foot soldiers out in the missions, so they were that too, but they were the counselors of kings. Mm. They were in every court in Europe. So they had a lot of influence. And of course, that influence in the end is what led to their suppression. Hmm. I'm getting really into the Sacred Heart, as you can see behind me. Um, at our uh, Tumblr house has a Teespring store with all merchant uh, with tons of merchandise. Um, uh, we have Sacred Heart T-shirts, where basically uh, I extracted just the Sacred Heart element from this flag, put it on a T-shirt, and it's one of my favorite things to do. Um, is walk with that t-shirt. I've said this before um, in terms of evangelization and showing people and representing um, what we're all about, that we're Catholics. Um, and it's so easy to do. Uh, it really is. And it helps, I think, deprogram secular society. It's like, oh, Christians, they're judgmental and you know they preach hate and they hate everybody. But that combats that if they just see, you know, your symbol of Christianity, of the sacred heart, and that you smile and that you're nice. And it does help. It counteracts the brainwashing. And I think it's very important for all of us to do. Um, yeah. Okay. Uh, so what else do we have? So uh, another question from... Uh, Knight's Tumblr. He says, uh -huh. uh, Solon Schertz mentions Claire for show, a mystic I had never heard of before. With a little re with a little research, I discovered that she was dismissed by the hierarchy in 1920, despite her notoriety during World War One. Given the seeming orthodoxy of her messages and the response of the faithful in France at the time. I'm a little confused as to why she was dismissed and forgotten without being outright condemned. I suspect there is more to the story. Can you tell me more about Claire Fershow and how she may or may not fit into traditional Catholicism? That's a very good question. Well, of course, Claire Fershow had a series of visions in which she was called on to speak to the President of France about uh, having the Sacred Heart put on the French flag. Uh, she actually got in to see him, President Poincaré, who said that he didn't have the authority, which is true because the French president in those days was a figurehead like the Queen is today. And he explained that he didn't have the authority to do that. Uh, from that point on, he... Um, he did, however, uh, encourage her, and she uh, was responsible for a lot of Sacred Heart badges 
being uh, circulated to soldiers and for some of the soldiers putting the sacred heart on their uh, battle flags. Well, the French government heard about this and were very upset and forbade the practice. Uh, but uh, toward the very end of the war, uh, Marshal Foch, who was the French commander and a very good Catholic, uh, he had representatives of all the Catholic uh, portions of the Allied armies gather, and, there, and he had their flags consecrated to the Sacred Heart. He didn't have it put on them, but he, and it was not exactly a secret ceremony, but it wasn't what you would call wildly public. Mm. So, uh, my suspicion is that for, uh, Claire Fischer was not condemned uh, because there was really no reason to condemn her. Uh, as far as her being sidelined, she was certainly a huge embarrassment, uh, especially considering what happened afterwards. One thing you find in both church and state is that people who told you so are never welcome. Never. Right. Uh, it is interesting that, you know, France had a number of uh, mystics dedicated to the Sacred Heart. So did some other countries, but France had a, quite a large number of them. And um, a lot of their, a lot of their uh, revelations were to a greater or lesser degree approved. But Claire Ferchot showed up the French establishment for what it was. And that, that's just, you know, nobody loves a whistleblower. This reminds me of another thing that uh, Solon Schertz is hot on. Um, uh, it's Our Lady of La Salette, mm. um, which is another... Uh, sort of mystical encounter that sort of has been obscured and I forgot why but well it it was obscured I think to some degree because uh, one of the um, kids who saw didn't lead the best of lives was it Melanie? I forget it was Melanie or Maxima okay. I know Maxima went into the papal swamps but uh, in the end it was approved I mean, there's, there are even the La Salette fathers whose job is supposed to be, um, you know, is supposed to be uh, circulating the uh, the message. But, you know, as with everything else today, uh, apocalyptic messages do not go over with the church hierarchy today because the church hierarchy are convinced that everything is wonderful. I know. See, I always wonder about that. You've got... It, it's so strange to me where you've got people like Faustina saying there are countless souls in hell, and then same with Fatima, and all these things, and everyone's so nonchalant. Well, I mean, Pope Benedict the Sixteenth in 2016 pointed out that we have become effectively universalists. I mean, people no longer believe in the necessity of the church or the sacraments for salvation. Now, once you've said that, what is necessary for salvation? Well, you can't really tell from Christian revelation. 
you know, as you say that, that, that just reminded me of how church is paralleling state so perfectly because that's an insanity. You know, in, in the context of the state, we're talking about, okay, you can be insane, but you're going to be dis, uh, replaced with someone who is sane. And that's sort of true with our church. It's like, well, your parishes are drying up because you've convinced everybody they don't need to go to church. Say you're... you're uh, you do a perfect act of contrition and make a spiritual communion and you're fine. Well, okay, goodbye. And, goodbye and that, Well, I mean, you're right. It is the same kind of insanity. Isn't that, isn't that something, though, that they should parallel so perfectly that they don't care if they don't even exist anymore in their occupation? Well, it, it, it parallels each other because they both occupy the same world. And because they have the same subjects, you know, the state has power over your over your body, the church over your soul, and in every age, the power structures of church and state parallel each other. That's true. It's very yeah. true. I and mean, that's why. I, I, yeah, no, I, I remember because I remember your very poignant line uh, when we we're talking about the hierarchy. And how the hierarchy always resembles you know, the secular world in a sense that so they're like CEOs. You know, they operate like CEOs, yeah. sort of in that same business model, if you will. Yeah. I mean, just as once upon a time they were a lot like feudal lords, you know, and at another time they were like other things, you know, they were like the leaders of war bands. Uh, now they are like CEOs and the difference of course is that both feudal lords and uh, barbarian warband leaders are human let's talk about the priests that are barbarian warband leaders what time period wow. oh we're talking maybe the 500s through the uh, 8 900s where uh, Ireland, uh, France, Germany, Northern Italy. What What was the Pope that was uh, more warrior than priest? What's that? Uh, was it Julius Pope Julius who was the the very the warrior? Julius the second. Julius the yeah. second. There we go. Not Julius the third. He was all about love. Yeah. Julius the second. Julius the second. He commissioned the Sistine Chapel, didn't he? He sure did. Yeah. Okay. Good. I'm getting better on my papal history. See. You should read a book that uh, my friends at Tumblr House brought out. It's well, that's called Vickers of Christ. Vickers of Christ. That's precisely how I remember it from Vickers of Christ. How much does it cost? Twenty four ninety five. Which, if wow. you get a, we have plenty of bite sized books uh, that are really nice uh, on Saint Joseph's Sacred Heart Mary. Uh, for five dollars, add one of those to your order. Get free shipping and handling. Free shipping and handling because it's over $25? That's right, Charles. All orders over $25. Free shipping and handling. No CODs. No CODs. Void where, <laughs> void where uh, prohibited. You are like a little kid where it doesn't matter how many times this is said. The same goofy no. smile on your face. It's... Well, it's because it brings back my childhood. Listening to late night television, hearing people go on and on about the most ridiculous things, all of which, however, could be ordered in this fashion. That's right. 
All That's right, right Charles. <laughs> okay, so act today um, and you get twenty five. To backtrack a little bit, back on La Salette, because that's one of my favorite ones, um, we actually, um, you can find that on our Tumblr House blog, too. Uh, I extracted the that chapter from Solange Hertz, put it on the blog. Some of the most striking revelations uh, about what is to come. I, I, the one that stands out is when Mary says that the world will be like a desert. I still can't imagine what that's all about. Uh, but the one nice thing about La Salette 2 is that there is hope. There's certain cataclysms, but then the world starts to be whole. Uh, you know, the people start to really worship God again and do what they're supposed to do, uh, which is nice. <laughs> yeah, I'll say. But, um, okay. So, any final words, Charles? Any... Any happy yes. messages that you want to close with? You betcha. The first is that Wednesday is July the 1st. Now, this is several different things all at the same time. It is, in the traditional calendar, the Feast of the Precious Blood. So, if you can get to a traditional Mass on the 1st of July, you do it. And you'll see the red vestments and so on. It's quite, quite neat. Uh, the second, in the new calendar, it is the Feast of St. Junipero Serra. Ooh. So make a point of praying to him and, and doing something uh, that day. I don't know, post Junipero Serra sites on Facebook or something. And let the idiots, the morons, the scumbags, and the fools realize through any way you can what their real nature is. But wait, there's more. It is also the date on which the uh, uh, British North America Act was signed, creating the Dominion of Canada. And so July 1st is Dominion Day, the national day of our great neighbor to the north and my ancestral homeland. Okay. And wait, there's more. <laughs> It is, We're going back to the commercial, but wait, there's more. But wait, there's more. The 26th anniversary of my father's death. Uh, so remember him in your prayers, Guy Joseph Conrad Coulomb. Uh, but wait, there's more. Three days after the 1st of July. The 4th of July. Yeah, you, you could do it. <laughs> Independence Day. See, this is why what got you uh, out of the mailroom and into the finance department. I know. I was there. So it was when your brother saw you counting like that and said, wow, he doesn't even need a computer. Yeah, because <laughs> no, this kid is going places. And you were right up at the top. Yep. I predicted it. But at any rate, so the 4th of July is Independence Day. Yay! Yay! So get out there with the with the uh, the picnics and the barbecues and the the um, fireworks, especially the Fourth of July, the glorious unsafe Fourth. Yes, that's the title. I was about to plug that. Uh, I what you wrote that for Catholicism.org? I did. Yeah, that was so. That was a wonderful um, article to read. That really. Um, on the before time. 
the before time yeah. back then. And I, I tell you, um, as you know, I'm a, I'm a, a Tory to the bone, mm-hmm. but I do love the 4th of July. And, you know, whatever else you say about the United States as they were, um, they were an extraordinary place, an extraordinary country. We're going to, to uh, reflect on the fact that it's summer, kids are out of school, the fourth is coming. We're going to reflect on lemonade and Seosaka suits, boda hats, summer dresses, bonfires at resorts, iced tea and pitchers salads, cucumber sandwiches, chilled Sauvignon Blanc. That's what we're going to reflect on. Uh, Because it is summertime. And just when you think you won't be able to stand any more of the summer, depending on where you are, finally the autumn will come. I don't, I, I won't lie to you. Autumn and winter are my favorite parts of the year, without a doubt. But summer does have a few joys. And to the degree, ladies and gentlemen, in these strange times that you can, enjoy them. Go out for a walk in the woods. Go to the park. Get away from the computer for a little bit. But not until you've watched uh, both the patron show and our show uh, every last second, mm. and then you can go. Um, do the barbecue, do the fireworks, do all this stuff. Because, you know, our good memories are what get us through the difficult times. And if we do have difficult times ahead, make as many good memories now as you possibly can. You've got the time, you've got the place, you certainly have the season for it. And uh, at the Tumblr House Tower, although they're still under severe lockdown, the uh, roof garden is going to be opened up, as I understand it, for barbecuing on the 4th. Mm-hmm. The, uh, it's going to be an employee party and all that. Yes. Okay. Uh, so, if it's Monday... It's off the menu. And the soul you save... Might... Just might very well be your own. Happy Fourth of July, everyone. Take care, kids. Happy Independence Day. Ah, uh, no, 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 no. Sorry. Happy holidays, everyone.